Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In our summer 2023 issue, Julian Saperiti writes about the George Igawa Orchestra, which entertained thousands of incarcerated Japanese Americans at a World War II internment camp in Heart Mountain, Wyoming. But Saperiti, who releases music as No-No Boy, has been singing about the best goddamn band in Wyoming since 2021, when his album 1975 came out. No-No Boy is named for the Japanese Americans who twice answered no on a wartime loyalty questionnaire and has been releasing songs about forgotten pockets of Asian American history for years. Burmese migrants, Cambodian kids whose parents survived the Khmer Rouge, Saigon teens, and his mother's experience as a Vietnamese refugee of an American war. We caught up with Julian Saperiti at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, where he performed a set in celebration of the 75th anniversary of Smithsonian Folkways to talk about reciprocity, scholars by waterfalls, and how to smuggle in history with a few strummed chords. Thank you for taking time out of your busy Folklife Festival schedule to chat. I'm glad we could make this happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, your piece for us, Last Dance, is all about the George Igawa Orchestra. And I'm curious how you first stumbled onto Heart Mountain, because the story of your music project and the story of George Igawa are sort of related, right? I think, so there's not a lot I have in common with um, a now deceased, would be probably 100-something-year-old Japanese-American um, who led a jazz band in Wyoming, except for that when I lived in Wyoming and I was getting my master's in American studies there, I would round up these kind of ragtag music school kids who wanted to do something besides the classical music that was offered in the more conservatory style. And we actually had like a New Orleans hot jazz band that we would tour around the state and like play all these cowboy bars. And it was just the wildest, most fun gigs I've ever played in my life. So while I'm out in Wyoming, I discovered there was another Asian American jazz band leader, uh, which if you've ever been to Wyoming, you would not think there'd be one, let alone two. And this story just, it really blew my mind because I had this vision of a scholar that I took from uh, this old trope in Chinese calligraphy artwork called Scholar by Waterfall. You'll see it in any Asian art museum you go to. It's this little monk, little scholar guy, walking with his hands crossed or behind his back by a beautiful waterfall. I thought that's what scholars were. So I was trying to live that life, and I was in Wyoming, right? Every morning I would get up and I would go out to the mountains nearby and I would hike or I would climb these giant cliff faces, and then I would come back and take my American folk life class. And it was beautiful. And it was through that process of literally going, exploring the state every weekend, climbing like a little monk around the state and doing my homework, that I stumbled upon these historical places. And that's where I ran into George Igawa. There's this museum at the old remains of the Heart Mountain concentration camp where I think 14,000 people in total were incarcerated because they were Japanese American during World War II. There's this tiny little photo of George Igawa in this jazz band. And I thought, wow, I have never seen Asian Americans playing pop music before, especially those black and white photos that can be such a place-making tool for people, right? You usually only see people who look like my dad, my white side, in those black and white photos. To see these like really slick Japanese American dudes in the state I was living in as an Asian American, it just did something for me. And then to zoom out from there, right? To start with that granular moment of history, a jazz band. We zoom out a little bit. Where are they practicing? A barrack. 
where's that? Well, it's in the middle of Wyoming with barbed wire surrounding them, machine guns pointed in, a spotlight, searchlights pointed in at all times, you know, people who were incarcerated unfairly, unconstitutionally, and yet there was this jazz band. So it was almost like, okay, I have to make sense of this. I gotta go through every camp newspaper that was printed by the incarcerees themselves and look up every time there's a mention of George Igawa or any musician, find out what these dances were like that they put on. You know, uh, find out like if they ever played outside camp, which they did. Find out the songs that they sang, you know, that they played, performed. Find out the instrumentation. Even though there were no recordings, you know, talk to people who might still be alive who were in that band. So it's really coming to Wyoming as this musician who happens to be Asian, seeing black and white photos of the other Asian musicians. It's really just me and this band. Um, man, it was just like finding a lineage, right? Not because they're necessarily Asian American, but because they're musicians. And I know what it's like to be a musician and leading a jazz band in Wyoming. And then the fact that they live this amazing history I was just a story I needed to tell, and that's kind of what I've been working on the last decade. I'm curious if you could talk more about uh, the making sense part of it, you know, because it is a really dark chapter of American history, and it's really bleak. You know, it was unconstitutional detainment. Nobody knew how long it was going to be for. A lot of those people never even got their, their homes back, and yet they were making music. So I come from a family that is scarred by imperialism and war and the trauma that comes with that. I come from a family history that, uh, objectively speaking, is, is much darker than um, the even 120,000 people unconstitutionally being detained and put into camps. Because these were not death camps, so to speak, right? Um, my mom left because... Her grandfather was blown up in front of her by a grenade during the Tet Offensive. That's why she left Vietnam. So I'm already operating from a point knowing the, you know, the, the state-sponsored violence of the American government and, and other Western governments or the Japanese government during World War II, right? This is the research and the family history that I'm coming from. So you get over sort of the initial shock and like the the blunt trauma done to this entire race of people in the United States, 120,000 people, two-thirds of whom were American citizens, completely unfairly put behind barbed wire. But then you've got to start unflattening that, right? And you start looking for stories. And some of them are much darker than that even, because some people killed themselves in these camps. Some people lost their mothers. My friend Jim lost his mom uh, to stomach cancer, in part due, I'm sure, to poor healthcare facilities in a concentration camp. But there's also people who to me are very instructional, like these musicians, who said, no, I'm a musician, this is what I'm gonna do. If you're gonna allow me any agency, right? Even if you're gonna take away 95% of my agency of being a free citizen, if you're still gonna allow me to bring my horn to camp, I'm gonna find the other idiots who bring their horns to camp instead of clothing or whatever. We're gonna form a band, because that's what we do, right? And that, to me, whether it's in the history that I study in Wyoming of this, uh, this camp at Heart Mountain, or whether I said it's like that really dark history of, like, you know, people having to face death and bombs going off when you're a schoolgirl walking home through Saigon, my mom doesn't define herself by the trauma that she's lived through. And we shouldn't define people by their worst moments, right? It should be recognized and dealt with, certainly. 
um, whether you've lived through them or it's the history that you study, acknowledged certainly and reckoned with. But I think that what's important is to find instruction from those folks, from people like my mom who still managed to make as much life happen as she normally would, even though there's a war in the background. Or people like George Igawa, who, again, you take away almost all of my agency, you lock me up in this state I've never even heard of, in this place that's so different from L.A. where I'm coming from. That's so instructional for me because I have all of my civil liberties, by and large, you know. I have a great amount of privilege as an American born when I was born, even as a minority or kid of a refugee or whatever. And to to not stretch, I guess, my own agency in the face of relative nothing, I think is sort of a disservice to the people like Georgi Gawa or to my family who lived through all that and really made life happen. So to me, it's, it's come with, after years of reckoning with these terrible histories that just floored me when I was studying them, whether it's, you know, um, Empire in Southeast Asia, or the Khmer Rouge genocide in Cambodia, or Japanese imperialism, or Japanese American incarceration in the United States during the same time period. These horrible things. The fact that our country is built on native genocide and slavery. You want to find those stories that humanize people and that are instructive to living a better life today. And to me, that's what telling the Georgi Gawa story is. It's not to take the teeth out of this really hard history that we need to reckon with and own, at, not as a Japanese-American or an Asian-American, but an American history. It's not to, to take the teeth or the bite out of that, like the harshness. It's to say, even though that reality was oppressive, there was still a sliver of light with which to strike up the band, and it was taken. And that's something that's really cool and worth sharing. Yeah, you get that sense through your music, which I think is very much about all of those different strands of imperialism and the Asian American experience, but also is somehow hopeful. You know, I'm thinking of the line in the imperial twist, which is like, can you put a twist in history by doing the twist? How do you pull together, I guess, all of the sources that you have, you know, collected sounds, oral histories? How does that all make it into the songs? We were talking about my dissertation earlier, and... It, I've never been good at like thesis statements or big arguments. Um, I just love studying history and then just bullshitting with people like Professor Bess, you know, back at Vanderbilt or my colleagues, all these geniuses I got to study with through my PhD and my master's and stuff. I just think that's enough. Just kind of go do the research and then, oh, that's cool. But obviously people want you to transform that into something that uh, you can share with people. Ironically then, I'm so curious as to why we choose this dissertation form, which is so laborious and jargon-laden and just really to please our masters in this old style as if Gutenberg had just only invented the printing press like yesterday, as if we don't have documentary films or, in my case, songs that can obviously convey history go back to Homer, you know? There's this great tradition of telling topical or historical uh, news or reportage, whatever, through songs. So. I think the reason why it all kind of coalesces these field recordings that I do and then chop them up into beats and make music out of them and then writing these historical narratives over these songs, you know, and, and thinking deeply at many levels, sonically and lyrically, is because art making allows me to actually transmit what I'm doing to a public audience in a way that my dissertation, if formally written, would have never done. It might have three years later after I finished it, 
gotten picked up by a publisher and bit turned been turned into a horrible first book like most of uh, our academic first books are it's really only second or third if people keep with it that they they find a voice and I already had a voice because I had been a musician for for 10 years like a songwriter since I was a kid so that's like it's not that like all these things like I I gel them together it's just I already had a form that could take in all the research I was doing and then transform it into something legible to both academics and the public, you know, if you like my songs. If you don't like it, then it's probably not legible. But a lot more people I know like the kind of songs I sing than would like me giving a really, um, I don't know, like polemical argument-driven lecture, you know. Those folks would not come see me at the bars back in Wyoming, and then I wouldn't be able to have conversations with them across kind of like political lines or religious boundaries. But when you bring a song, you're kind of like disarming people, and you're inviting them into something. And there's this temporal weirdness that happens that's different from reading a book, where you're just kind of sitting and bringing them back to the past through melody sometimes. And what did those lyrics I was attached to that tune uh, inspire? Like maybe I'll look into that more. I always cite this one. Um, email I got that comes to mind from this kid, now he's not a kid anymore he's my age so he's an adult and um, this kid named Stan in uh, Billings, Montana Billings is not the coolest town in the world if anyone's been there I hope you liked it got some good breweries but it's it's rough, it's a kind of classic western town but it's not Missoula, it's not Bozeman it's not not Jackson, there's nothing hip going on so we played this concert in an uh, art gallery, and it was like, quote-unquote, art gallery, not like a New York thing or anything like that. There were some paintings on the wall, and that was it. But it was great, because, you know, we brought 30 people just randomly around. They'd, I don't know if there's a write-up in the paper or something like that, but it was, it was a good crowd. And So Stan writes me this email maybe a week after I get back from playing that concert in Billings, and I remember it's like a page long. It's like really thoughtful and thorough, and he says, Hey, I just want to let you know... Um, yeah, I'm fourth generation Billings, Montana ranching family and uh, I'm a photographer so I hang out with all these like liberal artists and stuff like that but I'm pretty Republican pretty conservative guy and as soon as anyone would ever talk about immigration in my social circles it would always be in a way that's really argumentative and he just turned off right he says but I got to sit for an hour and a half with your concert and through the Q&A and I actually thought about you know, the individual lives of these quote-unquote immigrants and refugees. And I thought about it historically, and it made me reconsider what's happening today at the border to not be so fearful, to understand people as people, right? This is a summation of this very long email. But that touched me so much, and that's happened a fair few times. Sometimes right after the show, people buy you a beer afterwards, and it's folks who are definitely not of that New Yorker, New York Times crowd, folks, uh, roughneck folks, as we call them, people who work in oil rigs or natural gas and stuff like that. Or remember a day after a show in Cody, Wyoming, a a rancher took me out to breakfast just to talk about one of the songs more, one of the songs about the nearby Heart Mountain Camp, you know, and that's really cool. All of this has happened the last few years since I've been turning my scholarship into music and it's really not about how do you take all these disjointed pieces and try to put them together. It's, there was no thought to it. It was just that the practice was already there, producing records, songwriting. And then I really had something incredible to say, which was the oral histories I'd collected, just turning those into lyrics or the camp newspapers or my own family stories. And 
it was like a second inspiration. As a songwriter, I think a lot of people start writing songs because they can't handle themselves when they're a teenager. When we're going through puberty and then like a girl-boy thing happens or something like that, you just get freaked out and then you just write these songs because you don't know how to like talk to anyone or the world is so painful or whatever. So there's all that inspiration and that kind of fades. That's why most bands, unlike Academics, first album is the good thing that they do and then it's hard to recapture that magic. For me, going to grad school, ironically, getting a PhD was like a second songwriter's inspiration, like a second muse. And uh, yeah, I can't advocate enough for when, when I get to teach or when my colleagues teach, letting their students off the chain a little bit and saying, I don't know, you want to do something besides a paper? Do a podcast, do a movie, write a song, paint a painting, write a play, you know? Because I don't know about any other teacher's experiences, but I've never had a student who, when they're done with the semester and they've had to write a 30-page research paper and they've broken their back over it and they don't even know why they're writing it at that point because they're trying to write like an academic, which is to say impenetrably um, and way over their head. None of my students have ever taken that paper, gone to the bar, sat next to their buddy and been like, hey, dude check this out. Check, I'm just going to give this to you. Take this 30-page paper home, read it, give me your thoughts on Monday. That doesn't happen. But when my students have done art, right, or when they've involved each other into their own research and like made something collaboratively, done a media project, what they've researched does get shared more. I mean, when I found that picture of the Georgia Gawa band, when I talked to Yone and Joy, the band members who are still alive, when they entrusted me with telling that story, when I think about telling my mom's history, the history of neighboring countries in Southeast Asia, sort of pulling apart histories of immigration and refugees, especially in the current climate, to try to teach people, I needed to find a way to do that. And it just was never going to be a book, because most Americans don't read books. And everyone listens to music. And so if you can weasel your way into their ears, you can do some real history teaching. I want to ask about a lyric in the song Miss Burma, where you say, what part of history may I take? Can you talk a little bit about that lyric and I guess how you do use the oral histories or the, you know, the difficult, dark stuff? So I was trained most rigorously as an ethnomusicologist, and that's basically, you know, coming from an anthropological background, which is the academic case study for going in and taking people's culture and giving very little back. I think that's part of the reason why most of my ethnographic field work happens at concerts that I put on, right? I give something first, and then the audience will maybe reciprocate their own family stories. So I... I kind of grew incredibly wary of being part of this field, which was basically started by, you know, white folks plundering other countries, including Southeast Asian ones, and then bringing artifacts back to museums or trying to make sense of quote unquote primitive man to see where their more high minded, you know, uh, Western counterparts came from. It's that kind of BS. A lot of good writing, a lot of interesting, fascinating stuff. Uh, despite the cringiness of it, but I, that line, what part of history may I take? Uh, only the one which, which you might make, I think is the whole line. 
it's dangerous work taking people's histories, even your own families who have been through, again, these really traumatic times and then sharing them, you know, as much care as you might give as an artist or a scholar. It's not the life that you've lived. And so it's sort of the being open about the conflict I feel um, in the work that I do. You know, a lot of times, I mean, some of the, I've had songs commissioned, so you know people are giving you their, their blessings at that point. But, you know, if you're taking, uh, like a, one of my songs is um, called Boat People, is from an old um, interview with a Vietnamese refugee from 1978. Uh, and it was done on the radio, it was done on the CBC in Canada. So it's public domain, right? It's like, it's out there. And I just turn his story into the song. But I don't know this guy, you know? I don't know him besides the very in-depth but still like you know momentary interview that he gave it's thinking about that and it's thinking about being careful where you tread um, and how you utilize history perhaps not to just bludgeon people uh, with history but get more nuanced to get more primary sources into what you're might be referencing right I think a lot of people on my side of the aisle which is to say the left are using history uh, without much nuance these days for good ends, but the means I often uh, find difficult. Um, people citing maybe a BuzzFeed list of atrocities, you know, of state-sponsored U.S. violence and stuff like that, but they don't know any of the individual names of the victims of those atrocities or something like that, right? They don't know the story of Georgie Gawa and then the dozens of other people that... Um, I've researched and spent years literally talking to and understanding their experience or, you know, as an Asian American, I find it really funny because that term was invented by East Asian folks, mostly college educated in the 70s, uh, late 60s and 70s on the West Coast. So it's a very isolated group, but they were rallying around a war in my home country, in Vietnam, even though they didn't really know any Vietnamese people, right? So kind of using people's suffering and trauma as a political bludgeon, something I'm very wary of, and I'm also wary of that as a songwriter and as a scholar. Yeah, I want to talk more about um, Asian American history and like Asian American as an identifier, because so much of the album 1975 touches on a variety of identities. You know, it goes beyond um, your own Vietnamese heritage. It goes beyond Japanese internment to touch on I don't know, most, I feel like most of the Southeast Asian landmass, if not more. Can you talk more about that and sort of the, maybe your care in doing so? Wow, that's a fascinating thing to think about, the care in doing so, because sometimes what I found most limiting in the process of turning my dissertation into music or using my research as like the stepping stone was that I was too careful, more careful than an artist ought to be. So I think there's a, a carelessness that comes with a stupidity and bravery that artists um, inherently kind of have. And I feel like, if anything, like uh, PhDs overthink everything. So they're kind of like at odds with each other. So I feel like in, on 1975, not so much the new album that'll come out, it is a little bit too careful, actually. And that's because I was pleasing the academic side of myself. I think that there are a lot of different means to ends you know um and that lyric i quoted earlier about the imperial twist you know can you make art to make change big question i'm not going to ask you that question 
Um, I am going to ask, though, about this reciprocity you talked about earlier, because I feel like a lot of the work you've done pre-COVID, going to the border, going to detention centers, drawing like this explicit connection between prejudice against migrants, the detainment of migrants, um, and, you know, what you're singing about. Well, I'm a history or I'm a, a student of the history of immigration. I mean, that's a lot of... Uh, just what I spent my time reading about and learning about. And when you do that, you realize that the first, you know, people deemed illegal uh, as immigrants in this country are coming from across the Pacific, like my family. And it was only through this sort of like um, saving face after the Vietnam War that people like my mom and our ilk are let in in the hundreds of thousands, you know. And you see sometimes that switch gets turned off. Like when I was doing my PhD, you know, we weren't even allowing people who translated for us in Iraq or Afghanistan to come over and attain citizenship very easy. And there was that whole Muslim ban thing. And you see this continuation of the histories that you've studied. Who's acceptable now? Who has a bigger quota? You know, sometimes it's by race. Sometimes it's by religion. Sometimes it's by gender. And so you, you're kind of blind, especially if you come from a family of refugees or immigrants, to just stop with your family and say, oh, we got in, we did it the right way, or whatever, or enough times passed so we don't talk about our great-grandfather who was a paper son who came over from China or whatever. If you're not down at the border, or at least considering it um, as a continuation of the immigrant experience that most of our families have gone through, I think that's, um, that's a mistake. And so Trump had done the Muslim ban stuff and uh, everyone on campus at Brown was getting riled up about it. I was going to protest uh, all the time down at the courthouse in the Capitol. And I was like, I don't actually know any of these people. And so me and my buddies, Diego and Juan, who were doing their PhDs in history at the time, we decided to spend the worst spring break in the history of the world and go down to the Mexican border and just see if there was anything we'd do, like studying, you know, seeing some overlapping histories. We went to a, an old uh, internment camp in Crystal City, Texas, where Peruvian Japanese folks had been taken from Peru and used as POW trade bait and locked away in a camp in Texas. Wild stuff, and that's an hour from the border. And then we hung out in, in Laredo, in Nuevo Laredo, and we made friends with another guy named Mike, Pastor Mike, who opened up his um, church basically as a, a center for when women and children get let off the bus in Laredo from the ICE detention center nearby in Dilly. Um, he would just bring, bring them in and help them try to find uh, family in the States or lawyers while they were trying to seek asylum, you know. And so, yeah, before the pandemic, I, I kind of left campus and just went down to the border because it seemed like... I can't be singing about like these histories of like unfair immigration laws or trying to humanize refugees or immigrants from like a few decades ago without like, I don't know, trying to help. So he's going down and like buying out the kids underwear section at Walmart and Laredo and like bringing it back to the thing. And then that kind of, while I was still on a pretty fat stipend at Brown, all the money that I started making, which was decent um, from the No-No Boy concerts and stuff, went to supporting like some of those people that we've worked with. And there was one person in particular who's allowed me to tell her story named Anahi Castro, 
she was a dental hygienist. She was training to be a dental hygienist. And the cartel locally, they would kind of see anyone who had like some professional mobility in the community and they would target them for extortion. And that's what happened to her. So she was trying to make her way to the States to get away from that, this like, you know, uh, gang violence and extortion and stuff like that. And we met her after she had been kidnapped by coyotes at the border, locked in a basement, like in a cage, uh, had to pay a $12,000 ransom that she had to raise from family members or else they would have killed and raped her like she saw people in this basement next to her. They bring her over the Rio Grande. She gets picked up by ICE. She's in the Dilly Detention Center in Texas, right near Crystal City. She gets let out and we meet her in Laredo in Pastor Mike's shelter. She tells us a story. She says, tell more people about this. And then like, we ended up just uh, being able to pay off all of her ransom fees and her lawyer bills and stuff like that, which was a crazy amount of money for one person to have to deal with. And so, yeah, that idea of reciprocity, like what are you gonna do? How do you not just be the anthropologist that goes down and talks about these brown people back for your colleagues in the ivory tower, you know? Behold, primitive man. How do you not do that? Say, well, you make friends with people and you see how you can support the community as much, if not more, than they're supporting you by letting you in on their stories and stuff like that. So for someone like Anahi, who we've collaborated on music with and um, has been such an eye-opening person to understanding like the experience of this generation of refugees, um, it's a way to, I don't know, feel better about playing with these very dangerous stories, these very personal stories, these very traumatic stories, you know, trying to help first and then maybe get the the song lyric second. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it harkens back to, I think, a different kind of oral history, you know, like when the WPA hired Zora Neale Hurston to go collect the stories of former enslaved people, or even, I think a lot of folk music does this. Can you talk about, you know, your chosen medium here? You used to be in a jazz band, and now you're singing folk music. I'd call it folk music. What do you think folk music adds to this subject? I think besides hip-hop, folk music is the best way to tell a story. It's very long verses a lot of the time. It's repetitive. There's hopefully a catchy tune which carries you through it. And you can say a lot. So I like the form of folk music. I also like the utility of just being able to travel around with my guitar or another harmony singer. And you can go into those places that I wanted to bring these stories back to, those rural churches or bars in the middle of the country next to these ruins of Japanese internment camps, which the people growing up there knew nothing about, you know. There's a utility to it. So there's both in form, um, I think, a way to relate difficult, complex stories, have many layers going at the, at the same time through the poetry of your lyrics, but then also just because we can pick up and travel with an acoustic guitar, we can, we can reach so many more people than if it was like a big, uh, you know, you think something like, you talk about war, imperialism, incarceration. In my mind, I'm like, I don't know, like dark museum, smoke performance piece. Maybe I'm in a cage or something like tearing my shirt off or like screaming. Like I feel like that's the emotional one-to-one -one thing that comes up and you see a lot of that kind of art for better and worse I don't know I like the sneaky aspect of it 
I did an interview last album cycle with a NPR much smarter reporter than myself um, who called it like a Trojan horse for teaching history, like my records and stuff. And I really liked that because well, we do these awful gigs because I'm a masochist where I'll, you know, often like get a, a pretty penny, a university will hire me and that helps fund the project, right? And I'll get to do some teaching with my colleague who brings me in and do a concert. But I always ask if they can set up like a high school gig, which is the worst thing in the history of the world to have to play for a room full of high schoolers with no attention span and sing folk songs about history. It's just the worst gig. But you do it because you think it's important and maybe the videos I show behind me will stick if the songs don't. But there's usually a kid who comes up afterwards it's like, Hey man, could you send me the chords to that song? I'd love to learn it on guitar. And I think back to myself when I was that asshole high schooler and I was only listening to records and not reading books and how much that song would have meant to me. Especially, you know, sometimes these are like immigrant kids, like parents came from like uh, Central America or, or Asia like mine. And it's like, wow, that would have been really cool if there was like a song um, like one of mine that like sings about you know, like George Igawa, people who kind of look like us in the middle of these random places where there's not a lot of people who look like us. And so that's what really gets me. It's like if, if I know someone is like singing along or learns the lyrics to one of these songs, right? Like that really is a Trojan horse because we're tricksters, we're buskers. We just like go around and we can like be the fool in the court and speak a little truth to power. And you can, you can get away with it a lot of the time, you know? You, you can be a little mischievous and I think especially being trained in the academy having some of that is a really good thing you'll find links in the show notes to Julian Saperitti's music but I figured I might as well play some for you here since I managed to catch Julian's set at the Folklife Festival this summer so here's the first song he sang the best goddamn band in Wyoming performed on the National Mall Flyer-red musicians needed So young Yoni grabbed a silver mouthpiece Tracked down the kid who brought a trumpet to Pomona Let Yoni have it on the free to your lease Went to the trial, she was only 16 With some girlfriends to cheer her on Their club was called the Rockville's Mom said if you keep up the school, Joe, you can sing behind barbed wire Under the mountain it meant something to sing Stuck between two countries in a fire The best goddamn band in Wyoming Little Ted's best show rep the cardiac scan The clarinet kid the Nisei Artie show Stop by rehearsal in a tower paper bearing. Once he joined up, sister, it was on. They practiced daily, 
intrigued on the weekends, stirring up those dusty mess halls. Teenage bodies unchained from their parents. Man, them old folks, they really lost it all. The only swing band left in Wyoming that got them out some nights until dawn. Warbond drives and power moments dancing in love. Bunch of Japs playing jazz at the Thermopolis prom. Under machine guns, they dance behind barbed wire. At Below Zero, kid, it means something to sing. Angelinos mixing up with farm kids in the choir. The best goddamn band in Wyoming. Georgie Gawa, he split for Chicago. With Kamiko in the fall of 44, he left the band to test. Joy went with her family to DC. As for Yoni, he had to join the war. And that's a story from Old Hot Mountain and the best band you never did see. Locked up in prison camps for no fucking reason. But they still found a reason to sing The best goddamn band in Wyoming The best goddamn band in Wyoming The best goddamn band